Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. This week, we're very happy to have a return guest, Anne Majette, former classical music critic for The Washington Post. Now, what do you call it? Writer about town? What's the term? <laughs> Freelance writer. Auteur, perhaps. Oh, auteur. Freelance writer and auteur. And Anne, you're writing about classical music, as you have for a long time, but you've also got a book project in the works. Tell us about this. It's very interesting. I do. I'm doing a book about the woman who built pianos for Beethoven. Wait a minute. The woman who built pianos for Beethoven. (laughs) And then people assume, of course, that I made her up, that she's like a convenient figure, but she is a very real figure. And um, I've been I've been trying to do this project for a long time. It's a very labor intensive, research intensive project. And I want to do it as a historical novel because that's my comfort zone, frankly. And I think it will just reach people. I think as a scholarly book, it has. I'm just not the person to write it as a scholarly book. Um, The period fascinates me. Being able to put women back organically into the center of the classical music world at the time it was happening is amazing. Her father built pianos for Mozart. She was a child prodigy who played for Mozart. Um, She took over her father's business, moved it to Vienna, flourished there, dear friends of Beethoven, and her son took it over and was Brahms's favorite piano builder. Wow. Wow. There's a lot going on. It is an interesting period, that period between post-French Revolution, around Napoleon, the beginnings of Romanticism. There are so many changes that happened then. And we discussed, I think it was with Andy Doe one episode a year or so ago, about how this was the whole period when wasn't Schubert really the first freelance musician and people started giving public concerts and that was all new at that time. There was a whole change in the way music was appreciated. Sure. I mean, Beethoven was a freelance musician too. Um, I mean, another thing that changed a lot that I only really understood when I began researching this book, because you hear a woman built pianos and you think, oh my goodness, she was an outlier. Like what made her happen? And the more I researched, the more I realized that No, she wasn't an outlier. She was an outlier because, okay, she had her own company and she married the man she loved and they were happily married. That's amazing today. It would be amazing now that she had it all. She had kids who liked her, whom she liked. It doesn't always happen that way. But the fact is that women played a much more prominent and active role in culture in the Austro-Hungarian Empire before the Napoleonic Wars. And if you look at a dictionary of music from 1796 from Vienna, there are a bunch of women in there. And then you get Metternich coming in and the huge social conservatism backlash that comes in the wake of Napoleon um, post-1815 and women are put back in their place. And then that same edition of that musical dictionary from 18, from 100 years later, all the women are gone. And so women actually were much more active and much more a part of society than we remember. And it's completely posterity that wiped them out. Um, And that's an interesting thing because we just always think of it as sort of, oh, we're emancipated and they weren't. And in fact, women were on the construction crews in Vienna in the days when my heroine moved there. You would walk along and see women and men building the houses, Um, which, I mean, of course, it wasn't completely emancipated, obviously, but, but women were much more on top of things than we thought. And Nanette, my heroine, had a bunch of role models. She grew up in the town of Augsburg and in the prosperous sort of journeyman, 
you know, a, a handcraft, I can't, I'm only thinking in German now, Handwerker class. And there were women who took over their husbands' factories. There were husbands who died and women who ran them. Um, it was, that was part of life in those days. Um, so that's been really fascinating to uncover and really feel like I can, you know, bring that story to life a little bit. I think if we look back to a lot of periods, there were a lot more women than we've been educated to think in important positions and that they've just been erased. We're, we're sort of silly. I mean, I felt foolish going, gosh, they were 50% of the population then too. You know? <laughs> yeah. But then you, I start reading biographies now from the point of view of having done all of this research and you see how biographies just cherry pick. They get you know, the, the factoids that surround their figures and the Beethoven biographies wrote Nanette out of his life for years, and they've begun to put them back in. There's been quite a bit of scholarship done about her, but still the average person on the street has not heard of her and doesn't know about her story. Well, uh, now I think as a, a, a fan of Henry James that when he wrote about Daisy Miller and Isabel Archer, he wasn't just making up outliers. These were people that had to exist much more than we are led to believe in that period. Yeah. Well, and and... It's stupid because I've been writing about music for a couple of decades now, only in the in very recent years, toward the end of my time at the Washington Post, that I fully realized that I have a loud voice and I can make a difference and it is part of my responsibility to expand the canon. And I think when you're starting out as a critic, you just think, oh, I have to prove myself, you know, especially as a woman in a man's world, I bet I, I'm going to stick to the tried and true and whatever. But the more research I've done in women, the last couple of years has been eye-opening to me in terms of the numbers of female composers from the past that I've gotten to know. Like Amelie Meyer, who's contemporary of Mendelssohn, and she was a member of the Berlin Opera Academy. She was a co-founder of it. She wrote seven symphonies. This is not somebody who was sitting at home thwarted. And she got good reviews, you know, in the press. People, there was a big review saying, you know, we think women can't do this, but look, this woman really can. So that's a little patronizing, but it's still a male reviewer agog about her. And yet we don't learn about Amelie Meyer. Um, and the fact that I had been a critic for all these years and have learned probably 20 amazing female composers of the past that I'd never heard of is just such a sign that our field has been really constricted. And it's a reason people talk about classical music in trouble, um, that narrowness of focus has is largely responsible for it it's not it hasn't been treated as a living art form even in the way we deal with the past and this is the perpetual criticism of classical music that it's stodgy that it's frozen in the past that it's not you know that, that if someone wants to perform a contemporary work the elderly subscribers won't like it or won't want to pay for tickets for a concert of something that's new that they're not going to trust. And I guess it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways, isn't it? The field has been governed by fear for so long. Fear of people not buying tickets, fear of not being able to fundraise. Part of the reason for that fear is that the field has been selling us a line or sold itself a line for years that huge multi-million dollar institutions are the only way we can appreciate this music. And um, today, in the age of COVID-19, we're going to have to learn alternatives to that really quickly. This is not just because of COVID-19. These are problems that have been there all along. Now we're going to have to face them. And I love grand opera. I love big symphony orchestras. I love getting dressed up and going and sitting in red velvet seats. 
But you don't have to do those things to appreciate this music. Yes, you do need an orchestra of 100 people to get the full measure of a Mahler symphony. Absolutely. And the hammer for the Mahler sixth. Yeah, exactly. But there are a lot of other ways to appreciate this music. There are chamber arrangements. I'm not saying replace all the big things with other ways, but I think the field has been very slow in developing any other way and saying this is the only way we can do it. And now that we're suddenly faced with the prospect of maybe not having as big audiences for a while, of maybe it being problematic to get 100 people on stage together, we're going to have to be more creative about our programming and presentation and delve a little bit more widely into other works. And that's fabulous, you know? So you did this wonderful segue into the main topic that we want to discuss. In part, your Vanity Fair article entitled Furloughed Musicians and a New Digital Frontier, Performing Arts in the COVID-19 Shutdown. And it's no surprise that this has just come as a huge shock in the entire performing arts world, whether it be music or theater, popular music, classical music. Just before we started recording, you said that the thing that you're noticing the most with people you spoke to is the fear that they have of the uncertainty of where this is going. Yeah. Well, I mean, as I said, I think fear has been too great a part of uh, of classical music administration for too long. And I think you see it in the sort of knee-jerk reactions. I mean, the Kennedy Center trying to furlough the National Symphony Orchestra yeah. within hours of getting its bailout check from the government Um there are plenty of structural reasons to do that, but the timing alone was terrible, even if you want to do it. And there are so many more humane ways to do it and talking to the musicians. And there must have been some kind of panic at the top levels to make that happen the way it happened. Um, and I think that panic, I mean, I've heard that panic for years talking to administrators who were going out on a limb and are scared their boards are going to retrench. People don't have enough tolerance for risk. Um and what's interesting is when I was doing the Vanity Fair article, which let me touch base with people from all different sizes, the small organizations, some of them were really thrilled. Um, there is an element to this classical music world we've created of a rat race that everybody is just working as hard as they possibly can to keep their head above water, be it performers, be it administrators. You're just trying to raise money. You don't really have time to innovate because you're just trying to do the bare minimum to keep your season going as it is. And innovating is like one more arm that you just don't have because you're already juggling with eight arms. Um, but this is a huge opportunity because we have to think differently. And um, the head of the in-series, whom I quoted in the Vanity Fair article, the in-series being a small group de dedicated to chamber music, sort of inventive stagings of chamber music in D.C. And um, he took it over a year and a half ago, and he puts on amazing things, and he puts on a lot of them. And he said, A, this has been wonderful because he was burning out, and B, the chance to sort of reinvent himself was really exciting. And, of course, his budget is under a million dollars, so he's got his he's got his board members who were with him no matter what he does. He's trying an entirely virtual season. But the genuine kind of excitement and creativity and spring in his step that this brought, um, you know, we don't want to admit that too much because there are so many people who are devastated and wiped out and finding a silver lining in it seems callous in a way. And so I think in the classical music world, you try to soft pedal it a little bit out of tact because there are so many people who are just on the floor, you know, and and that's very understandable and there's no judgment. But, you know, the crumbs of optimism here are that there's room for reinvention and that reinvention is what art needs, you know? There are going to be some losses, though, because one of the things I've been reading about is that a lot of these middle um, jobs, the, the, the people who, the bookers and the managers and the agencies, um, they're experiencing a problem because they have nothing to do. Their artists can't be booked. And so the thought is, now what happens to them? What happens to that 
end of the business. Oh, I mean, it's catastrophic. And that's why I say to be Pollyanna-ish about, oh, we've got to reinvent ourselves. The, the irony is I've been saying this for a while before the COVID shutdown. I was saying we need fewer of these big institutions that suck all the money and air out of the field and we need more opening up. This is a brutal, brutal way to achieve that. And so many of the really good people in the field are be, you know, artists as managers, middle level, top level. Um, just because you're a top star at the Met doesn't mean you have six months of money to carry you through if you're totally not working. No income is no income, whatever level you're working at. Um so, yeah, it's going to be a radically different field. And I don't think that fee structure is going to come back. I don't think, for example, the union fee structure with regard to broadcasting can survive because broadcasting is going to be essential to this. If you're only playing to half empty houses while you're working on social distancing in the auditorium, you're going to have to have a digital component. Um, and people are already figuring that out and everybody's getting totally sick of the mosaic orchestra piece. You know? Yeah, but that Juilliard video was really, really well done. That Juilliard video was super. Yeah. Yeah. But it is going to be hard to top. And, and yeah. we were saying earlier, even before, just before we were chatting with you, it's like it's it's becoming a trope of itself. It's already be a parody of itself. Yeah. There have it, been, it's a I mean, I have my collection of greatest hits already, but did you guys see the St. John Passion from Leipzig? It was no. one soloist and a vibraphone and a keyboard and four oh. singers positioned around the place. And then all the choruses who were going to come to the Bach Fest came in virtually by Mosaic. And it was stunning. It was really beautiful and it wasn't gimmicky. It was genuinely moving. Um, so between that and the Juilliard video, like I, there's a lot of inventive ways to do it and there's going to be a lot of dreck which is how new art is sure. you know? yep. but but there are lots of limitations in that format there's a lot of limitations in the format yes and and to pretend that that's going to replace what we love about the arts is stupid on the sure. other hand to pretend that we're all going to come together in rooms of six thousand coughing <laughs> elderly people is also stupid so that that's is so that's the thing as you know i'm three miles from stratford upon avon we go to the royal shakespeare company and back in january when this started my partner said you know go into the theater where we in our late 50s early 60s are among the youngest people in the audience and hearing all these people coughing would not be comfortable and I can't see it happening until a vaccine comes back. I, I can't see them filling the 1,400-seat main theater with 100 people to have enough space between them. I can't see that being just because of the cost of of having the, the, the front of house staff, having the, the stage staff and everything, it's just not possible. But, but also, how do you get them in and out of the theater? How do you avoid crowding when they're coming in? How do you avoid crowding in the restroom line? Yes, on the, the women's restroom line at the interval. <laughs> exactly. But so you mentioned something earlier about the hundred people in an orchestra for Mahler Symphony. And maybe one of the problems in classical music is that they needed the big spaces for the symphonies and the operas. And in order to keep the big spaces running, they need to do big works instead of the chamber works, the solo recitals, etc. Our venues of choice are Town Hall and Symphony Hall in Birmingham, and we've seen many solo performers there, which it's kind of incongruous to see one person on a piano in, in a, a venue with 3,000 people. But it works. But you don't need a venue that big necessarily with all the costs that it entails. Yeah. And the irony is the perfect size is like like a thousand or twelve hundred seat house and there are so few of those and you know now of course maybe 800 seat houses there's just so much that you can do and orchestras have been as you say playing it down in order to convince people what that what they need is a huge orchestra every week and 
in this the way they market orchestras they don't market it as a weekly thing they market it as a big event thing come and see our amazing orchestra well, if it's a big event you don't need it more than once or twice a year you know yeah. there are so many things that those musicians can be doing and so many artistic things you can be doing and also let's face it an orchestra concert plays to one audience and if you really want to develop your audience you can be doing so many different kinds of concerts because there's loads of anecdotal evidence that what drives what keeps the audience older is not the music itself, it's the format. That we've created an experience that makes the older audience very comfortable. And the younger audience is perfectly happy. They're probably musically more alert and more curious than the older audience, but they're just not so thrilled with having to go and follow all these routines and sit in that seat and do it that way. And there's no earthly reason they should. They certainly didn't back in, you know, classical era Vienna. One of the most popular chamber series was at 5.30 in the morning, outdoors. What, like under a gazebo. <laughs> well, I know. It wasn't popular. It was like one of the highest class, because they were complaining, of course, the masses only wanted to hear Rossini and all that crap, and nobody yeah. liked high art anymore. So all those complaints <laughs> were still going on, too. <laughs> but it's true that we have a lot of innovative small ensembles now, and the question is, I mean, they've been fighting for funding against the bigger ensembles. Will this be a, so you can't really predict, but could this like clear out a lot of the cruft up at the high end with the champagne and the caviar fundraising cocktail parties and maybe get more people interested in the smaller ensembles? I've, I've heard it both ways. I've heard people say, yeah, this is the moment for the smaller ensembles. And then I've heard the large ensembles that the smaller ensembles are never going to be able to keep going because their livelihood has been wiped out. I mean, there was that New York Times article a month or so ago about a young string quartet, and they can't rehearse together. Yeah. And, you know, they're living from booking to booking. And um, and there's a real existential fear there. So how many small groups like that? Is it going to be the smaller presenters that bring back the smaller groups? Is it going to be performing arts centers figuring out how to use their alternative spaces? I mean, the Kennedy Center just spent $250 million or $500 million on this new annex called The Reach that is really, really underused because they hadn't quite figured out what to do with it. It was supposed to be sort of rehearsal spaces that audiences could come look at, but they didn't really program it so much. It's been a very amorphous space. But this may be a real gift to that space because smaller spaces without fixed seating where people can mill around and you can keep the numbers down are ideal for the current point in time. So if a large institution can figure out a way to monetize or to utilize alternative spaces within itself, that might be the boon for smaller organizations. I would think that with um, with the great equalizer being the internet, that a lot of people would take advantage of, you know, recording or live feeding. Um, you know, they could do, they have lots of opportunities to broadcast and that gets them the attention so that later on, when they tour, that sort of, you know, you got to give some free cookies in order to sell some cookies. And I think this is a good opportunity for that. It is, if you can get the attention. I mean, we all know that getting attention on the internet is a challenging thing. Um, and we all know that it takes a million hits to earn $1,000 on YouTube or whatever. I don't, I don't That probably is inflated. It may be $500. But and getting a million hits, some of the best content we've seen has gotten 10,000 hits, you know, and that's good. And there's so much competition now. And also that first... Uh, David Taylor, who is an arts uh, arts entrepreneur in England, I don't know if you guys know him, but he did a blog post on the probable course of this. And he was talking about at the beginning, everybody's just in shock and so happy to see 
the artists there and there's a wave of giving and a wave of audience and eventually everybody gets sick of it you know and everybody kind of tunes out and it becomes much harder and then classical music is just competing with everything else out there and um, I always tell the story about some major orchestra in America I can't remember which orchestra it was but they wanted to do an internet video and they called it viral video and they put it up on YouTube and it got 400 hits in the first three weeks <laughs> and then it's a viral video 400 people had seen well, it there's a huge amount of competition here, the Royal Shakespeare Company has been streaming six Shakespeare plays on the BBC iPlayer, the Globe Theatre as well. Different, the National Theatre has been streaming a different play a week on YouTube, and I think they might be accessible in the US. The ones on the BBC iPlayer are not. So, someone who wants the arts now just has so much to choose from that they're not necessarily going to pick. Igor Levitt's 50th house concert, and he's done 50 house concerts in 50 days, and he's going to take a break for a while. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, there's an opera singer named Ryan McKinney who has been doing wonderful, creative opera videos. That He did a thing called Corona, Corona Demerung, which was an act of a scene from... Um, from Rheingold um, with Jamie Barton. It was fabulous and very, very funny. It was actually a genuine staging of the scene. It wasn't a parody, but it was Is very... That the one starts with the guy waking up in bed? He's waking up in bed and yeah. Frick is brushing her teeth and... Yeah. and Everybody's popping in with emojis, and it's it's very very well done. But he's done a bunch of stuff. He's done duets with himself. He's gotten other singers looped in. It's it has a lot of the spark and humor and fun that I miss from opera stagings, from normal opera stagings. So that's great. But he's the one. Corona Demerung has I think ten thousand, maybe by now twelve thousand hits. Right. So they're spending a lot of time, and they're not making any money from it. It's not exactly. And he's been he's been steadily providing content. It's a place you can go back and see. He's been doing everything right, and he's just doing it to raise money and keep his hand in, although I hope it leads to a new career as stage directing. I mean, yeah. one thing that this does spotlight is how much creativity there is that yeah. gets lost, ironically, in our creative field, because you've got the template of what it is that you do, whether you're a pianist going in and playing X concerto with the orchestra, or a singer going into the production, and your actual spirit of invention and creativity is not always utilized and to see that coming out is wonderful if there's a way to keep that going that would be great but the question of how to monetize it is going to be huge and of course if artists can't make a living they're not going to be able to keep all these marvelous inventive things going they're going to have to find other income streams and many people are going to have to go work at starbucks again years after they thought they were going to have to well my thought is that when i lived in new york in the 70s and the 80s i knew people who were actors and when they weren't acting they were working waiting tables in restaurants but since restaurants are closed now they don't even have that option so they'll all be working in amazon warehouses yeah oh <laughs> Ouch. Ooh, snap. That's a bad one. In terms of the whole financial support for artists, there's a huge geopolitical divide with the, the sort of Darwinian element in the U.S. and here in Europe with more or less government assistance, depending on the country. So while, again, Royal Shakespeare Company, I believe they have 700 employees, the government is paying 80% of their salary up to a certain amount. I don't think that's the case for actors. Actors who are considered to be self-employed, they're not going to get that much. I don't know what it's like in other countries, but I know that there's a lot more support on this side of the Atlantic than in the U.S., which could lead to a, a different new balancing of the cultural landscape. Sure. 
I mean, it's always been differently balanced. I mean, Germany, what is it? On any given night in the world, there's more opera in Germany than in the rest of the world combined. Um, Germany is sort of the leader, and Germany has been, the government has been putting a lot into artists and into theaters. But, of course, in Germany, um, art is, culture is governed on a state-by-state basis. So the different states have different regulations in play, and still the artists are dealing with that freelance thing if they were freelancers. So um, it's not quite as, as secure as it is in some places, but it's much better than it is in America. Yeah, America has been precarious for a long time, although you could argue that the money comes from the sort of ruling classes, governing classes, whatever. Um, Certainly, it was interesting that some of the smaller companies I saw who have, you know, five extremely loyal donors who evidently have enough money, they're not worried about the stock market, feel completely financially secure to go ahead and even to loop in artists from other countries. If you're going to work virtually suddenly and you're a small company in D.C., now you can work with your friends in England and make some great project that you couldn't do, you know, afford to pay for. Um, But yes, the whole economic picture in America and what the future of that's going to be is really up in the air. Foundation funding has been pulled now because all the foundations are putting money into medical research and whatever. Private funding is in question because of the stock market, although there's been a wave of sympathy donations, certainly. And um, ticket revenue, of course, is zilch. Ticket revenue never accounts for more than 50% of a large company, but still, it's that. Um, So yes, it, it... that's why I say it's an open question whether the large companies or the small ones will be hurt worse. And again, these have all been problems before we moved into COVID-19. Yeah. This exacerbates it. It's sort of like climate change. You know, oh, we can't do without fossil fuels. Oh, look, we're all shut down. Now we can. <laughs> Many of the same things that we, quote, couldn't do, unquote, now we're discovering we can and we're going to have to deal with it. So in recent weeks, we've interviewed a number of very well-known classical musicians. And we were saying before the show that the one thing that comes across and what you've seen as well is the fear that they're expressing. You mentioned earlier, not that many musicians have enough income to go for six months, let alone a year or two, which is entirely possible. Record royalties aren't that big. You know, they all live from live performances. It's hard to not see this as an apocalyptic catastrophe for these musicians, for other performing artists, less so for the structures where their employees, where governments can pay salaries. But it's hard to imagine that, let's say you're a mid-level musician, 10 years into your career, building a career, and you've got these plans, and all of a sudden, what do you do? You've spent 20 years, 30 years learning this craft. You can't even go back and teach it in a university or conservatory. What, what, what's the end game for you? I mean, the one, the one sort of thing to grab onto in this is that everybody is in the same boat and that's never happened. And it's hard to imagine that it will all go away, you know, <laughs> that we're going to find some way. Yes, many people are probably going to have to find other things to do, but, um, you know, I, the fear and the sadness and the grief is is palpable. And and yet, you know, people are getting up in the morning. I mean, I think that's the reason for some of the better YouTube things is like you, you've got this. You're still healthy. You can still do stuff. Um, but it's really terrifying or crazy, at least, and that nobody knows. Literally, nobody knows. There are no answers. I mean, some people are planning to go back in the fall. Others are thinking that's not possible. People I talked to, most of them were modeling multiple different possibilities, like what happens if we go back in the fall, in September, in November, in January, 
in 2021. Um, and I think that's probably the norm for organizations. Um, you know, for, for artists, there's really nothing you can do. Your hands are totally tied, whether or not you're making videos for YouTube. And a lot of people don't feel like that. It's not exactly a time that encourages deep thought and concentration. Um, it's it's going to be up in the air. And I would almost say that companies are jeopardizing their relationship with artists based on how they deal now. But the sad fact is that whatever companies yeah. are left when it's over are probably going to have artists willing to work for them and put up with it because there's artists just need the money. You know? Well, there's already one artist management company that went under very quickly, and I'm sure that there are others who are really exposed to this and could go under as well. So you even get the whole infrastructure involved in the artists working with these companies as at the same time. And publicity, PR, yeah. and I mean, and journalism for that matter. I mean, I... I quit my job in November last year. You knew this was coming. Yeah, I knew. <laughs> I say I knew this spring was going to be a big retrenchment for me, but I didn't mean to bring the whole field along with me. <laughs> but my successor um, took over two days before the COVID shutdown. He had his first day in HR meetings. The second day was his birthday, and the third day he was told to go home. So he has yet to review a concert. So the brand new classical music critic, and of course, it's hard to build up your contacts if you're just sitting at sure. home. He's done a bunch of good articles. I mean, more power to him. And he he tweeted out very amusingly that the first thing he the first concert he hears is probably going to be the best thing he ever heard in his life yeah. <laughs> because we're so hungry to go back. Um, but you know what happens to full time music criticism, which was already a very you know parlous in a parlous state, shall we say? Um, and what happens to record labels? Record labels were already dead. We've already been singing yes. the, the death knell of those. They were well. I I was talking to someone the other day who has a couple of recording sessions planned for solo musicians. So you can you've got a musician, you've got an engineer, you've got a producer, people staying far enough away, it's possible. But they're gonna run out of recordings in a certain I mean, they've got recordings in the can that are ready, but they're gonna run out soon and there's only so much you can do with solo musicians. Well, you could do ensembles. I mean, a lot of, let's face it, a lot of opera recordings have been done without all the singers in the studio at the same time for years. I mean, but you need the orchestra. You need the orchestra. Yeah, that's true. You can't mic each each instrument separately. I mean, you could, but it wouldn't sound the same. It would sound strange. Well, that's um, what we're hearing on YouTube, because that's what those things are, is everybody self-recording and then somebody mixing it. All of those mosaic things are not done in real time. Of course, but we're not we're not listening to them for the audio quality. You couldn't release that on a CD. It wouldn't sound the same. You know, the, 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 the interplay you get in a string quartet as the sounds bounce from one instrument to the other isn't something you get if you mic them alone. It's true. And, and string quartets just can't rehearse. I mean, even yeah. if you sit far enough away in the, in the recording studio... Um, I don't know. You'd think it would be a great time for recording, but as you say, it's limited the number of musicians. I mean, you could do vocal recitals to some extent, but of course that hasn't been an income stream for a long time anyway. You know? no. And apparently vocal music spreads the virus more. So there was there was a choir <laughs> not listening to it. That's just yes, performing, performing it. it. There was a there was a choir that performed someplace. I'm not sure if it was in France or somewhere else, or maybe it was a South Korean thing. A there church were, choir. There were case studies I know of. The one I most remember is the American one, where the L.A. Times did an article, and it was a choir in 
on the West Coast, either Oregon or Washington State, and they met for a rehearsal. And it was like before the real shutdown, but after everybody was worried, it was like March 7th or something. And they all took precautions. Nobody hugged, nobody touched. And 45 out of 60 of them or something came down yeah. with COVID and, mm. and six died. Um, wow. And that was really sobering because that was back when they were saying it's not airborne. Don't worry about it. And yeah. then suddenly it's all like, oh, maybe you should be wearing masks after all. But yes, yeah, singing, singing and jogging. And of course, joggers don't want to wear masks either. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. So one thing you also said before we started recording is that you've talked to a number of musicians who in some ways are breathing a sigh of relief that they're able to get off the conveyor belt. And, you know, musicians of this caliber, they've got their schedule two, three years ahead, if not more. And all of a sudden, they get to breathe and think about just lazing around and maybe... But it's not only that. They've been on the road yeah. for years. Yeah. I, and wasn't it Angela Hewitt said, I came back to my London apartment and I was cleaning up the mousetraps because yeah. she's been away from the apartment for so long. Yeah. I mean, I, I just can't imagine being, you know, that far flung. Yeah. And, you know, now now having that respite. That's been a huge problem in our field for a while. We want people to make meaningful art and we keep them on such a treadmill. And that's everybody. As I think I said earlier, administrators, too, everybody's been just doing everything they can to keep their head above water. Um, yes, one could hope that when we go back, it's in a way that's more beneficial to the artist and gives people breathing room. The flip side of that is, again, if you want to make a living, how are you going to do it? Will it be possible to maintain a happy medium where you can earn a living and earn your way, but not have to be on the treadmill all the time. For a big solo instrumentalist, it's tricky because you got to practice every day. It's very hard to take too much time off. Um, but but yes, it would be nice to have a more human element built into it. There's a meme going around Broadway that all the singers and dancers are going to come back and their voices are going to be rested and they're not going to be injured and the dances are all going to be fabulous because everybody's going to be really ready to go. Um, and it, it does certainly make you look at what we've turned this world into, how it's just become more and more of a machine. Um, and I can think of artists who have been sort of forced into this template, as I mentioned before, that isn't really where they lie as an artist. Like some people really excel at going in and playing the Greek concerto on a tour and then going and playing the Beethoven concerto. But there are other artists who really thrive at the quirky project and the collaboration and the weird thing and the fringe thing. And um, we've seen a lot of mainstream artists looking for ways to sort of do more, whether it's Yo-Yo Ma and the Silk Road project, whether it's Hilary Hahn and her various, her improv project and her encores project. And I think she was going and playing for knitting groups and mother's groups and just trying to think of ways to bring music into into people's lives in different ways, which is really admirable. Um, you know, we that's been something that artists have been wrestling with for a while. It would be nice if this could accelerate that in a way that brought it back to being about the art. I mean, if it makes the world go a couple of paces slower, that would be great. And that's everybody else's question about recovery in general. Are we all going to go back to the crazy ways we were, or are we going to be a little slower when we go back? Will we, all, will we have forgotten about this in a year or not? Yeah, your, your bet is as good as mine on that. Uh, there's lots of think pieces going both ways. I did see something today in The Guardian. People worried about mental health of people sequestered in their homes, but a lot of people are finding this a huge relief that they don't have to be anxious about presenting themselves. They don't have the stress of a commute. and No deadlines. As Well, even deadlines are different. I mean, I've been working at home for 25 years. Doug, you've been working at home for 20 years. 
It's, I remember working in, you know, suit and tie corporate jobs and it is, it is a different thing. You're home. You can hang out with your cat. You can take a walk outside within limits these days, of course. So maybe, I mean, maybe we have too many musicians. Maybe we have too many actors in theaters. Maybe there's just too much of all of it and that there's so much competition. And it was so difficult for them already. And this is just going to show that there was just too much and things will just naturally pare down. Or maybe in two years, we'll have a vaccine. Everyone goes back. There's a rush. There's this huge excitement like the fall of the Berlin Wall in 89. And then things just kind of flow back the way they were. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, it's so tricky because discussing abstractly discussing the idea that we have too many organizations and too many artists makes perfect sense but there are people who hearing those words like a knife to the heart you know like that's me you're talking about how dare you you know and and because these subjects are so emotionally charged it's very difficult that's been one of the problems with the field anytime you discuss alternatives people are up in arms because they're defending their way of life and that's made it very tricky to create this kind of change. Imagine if there were fewer performers and more teachers of music and dance and theater in schools. Imagine if schools were to embrace culture more importantly. And some of the people who were never going to make careers anyway went into teaching and amateur ensembles. And yes, they won't get to walk on the stage at Carnegie Hall, but they'll still be doing something that they enjoy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could say they've already do a lot of teachers there who haven't made careers at Carnegie Hall. But, no, uh, no, no. But and others will just write historical novels about the woman who made pianos for Ludwig von Beethoven. Well, I've I've been laughing and saying, you know, two big reasons I left my job were the grind of going out so many nights a week when I have a family was difficult, and I wanted to work from home more. And our bosses didn't want us to do that. And had I just waited a few months, I could have avoided going out so many nights, and I could have worked from home. I mean, everybody's learning they can work from home now. You know. So when do you plan to finish this novel? Now that you've got all this free time and you can't go anywhere. Well, you know. That was all great, but part of this novel was predicated on my son being in school for hours every day. And ah, um, yes. now I'm yes, one of those yes. parents you hear about who's working with homeschooling. It's very difficult to get those four uninterrupted hours any time in the day. I have to I have to structure it more. I'm one of those people who has found it harder to be creative in a situation with the family and just trying to keep the family sort of focused has been a challenge. Although I've done some freelance pieces and some shorter projects and and that's all great. Well, you need to press gang him into doing research for the novel. I I mean, it'll be real life work experience. There'll be something to see at the end of the project. His German is a little shaky, although he can say say gingerbread and train station. Well, he's got time to learn now. That's right. (laughs) Okay. And Majette, thank you so much for joining us. I hope we can have you back when your novel is finished, and I hope it won't be too long. There'll be links in the show notes to your Vanity Fair article and to Washington Post, where you wrote hundreds of articles. And stay sane, keep teaching, and keep writing, and we'll get through this somehow. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Keep podcasting. We'd like to thank our Patreon patrons, for uh, kicking in a few dollars every month to help us stay independent and self-supportive, ad-free. You can also be a patron. Just visit patreon.com slash the next track. Follow the prompts and we'd appreciate it. It is time now for our next track picks. Kirk? Well, I didn't really want to pick anything classical because I actually haven't been listening to a lot of classical music in the past few weeks. 
And sometimes I go through For You in the Apple Music app, and I look to see what have I listened to recently. That made me think of the song, I came for you, for you, I came for you, you did not need my urgency. I shouldn't be singing this because that's just terrible. And that's a song from Bruce Springsteen's first album, Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey. I listened to this about a month ago when I was cooking, and, and I was doing something complicated, so I listened to it twice. It's only 37 minutes. When Born to Run came out, it was the, the, the record that we listened to in my friend John's car all the time. He had it on eight-track tape, and it was like, baby, we were born to ka-chunk, run. And I don't remember exactly where the track split, but it was always annoying listening to that. And and I got so into that that I went back to his first two albums, the first one being Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey, and the second one being... Uh, uh, the Wild, the Innocent, and the E Street Shuffle. The Wild, the Innocent, and the E Street Shuffle. Exactly. But I always really liked the first album because in many ways it's derivative. It's it's like this guy who thinks he's going to be Bob Dylan, and he's got these really weird lyrics, which he got rid of after a couple albums. You know, the lyrics are much more concrete when you get to Born to Run. But there was a level of creativity there. The beauty of some of those songs, Spirit in the Night, It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City, Lost in the Flood, Growing Up, I mean... There are nine songs on that album, and I think eight of them are great. Blinded by the Light starts out, and, you know, he wrote this, released it in 1973. It didn't become a hit until a couple years later when it was Manfred Mann's Earth Band who did this sort of super trampy version. But but the promise of that early Springsteen, and, and we were hearing it then with the popularity of Born to Run, and going back to these early things and thinking, what's he going to become? One of the rare artists that fulfilled the promise of a first album. And when you think of it, 1973, my God, that's 47 years ago, and he's still going strong. So I'm going to put this one on again. There's something about the music and the lyrics in here that just gets me every time and brings me back to that period in the 70s when... Just too many times I've listened to Born to Run, and I need to listen to a different Springsteen album. What about you, Doug? A couple of days before this podcast was released, we found out that uh, Kraftwerk founder Florian Schneider had died. He was 73 years old. I was not a a big Kraftwerk fan, but it's really hard to ignore uh, how important their music was. I mean, it's the basis of techno. It's the basis of hip-hop. It's the basis of disco. It's the basis for lots of music that came afterwards. I was not as entranced, as it were, with uh, their early hits, uh, Autobahn and Trans-Europe Express. I mean, as far as I was concerned, if you heard them once, you'd pretty much heard them forever. It wasn't necessary. The the repetition uh, didn't really require you to keep playing the music over and over again. And it wasn't very dynamic. It was just lots of repetition. Even so, that didn't stop David Bowie from naming his uh, somewhat instrumental song on Heroes, V2 Schneider, after Florian Schneider, because he was also inspired by Kraftwerk. Um, Like I said, I didn't really pay much attention to the early stuff other than the fact that, oh, listen, it's a synthesizer band. But the album that I liked was Computer World that came out in 1981. And I was in college radio at the time, and it was very popular. And it was very listenable. It wasn't wasn't Trans-Europe Express. It wasn't Autobahn. It was shorter songs that were obviously calculated to get at least a little airplay. They were like three, five, six minutes long. Uh, and they're somewhat entertaining and very interesting and, and more pop-oriented than the earlier, longer, repetitive things. So I'm going to get into some German electronic music. Kraftwerk, Computer World, is my next track. 
This was episode number 181 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us afloat. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.